Praise in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. One last thing. Women's meeting next Saturday, um, 11 a.m. here. Talk to a lady, probably my wife. She, she knows more than I do. James. preaching. Good to be back. I love this church. Love the people in it, because you are the church. And um, message today is taken from Acts 18. However, before I read from Acts 18... I've, I've actually titled this Carry On Speaking. That's not <laughs> and um, you remember the old Carry On films, but this isn't going to be a comedy and it's not going to be salacious, so you can rest, uh, rest okay. But before I um, go into this, you've all been reading the newspapers and seeing the TV uh, footage of this cataclysmic, potentially world-engulfing cataclysm that's happening in the Middle East. And it's happening around Israel, which we know about because we read about it every day when we read the Bible. And we know it's Israel is uh, central to the return of Jesus Christ. He comes back to Israel when the Jews say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he comes back to Jerusalem. And no Jerusalem, no Jews, no return. Because he comes back specifically when those conditions are met and are enduring. Now, yesterday, I think it was, there was, was it the day before? Well, I had a, this great big march in London, and 100,000 people turned up. They were pro Palestinian, which essentially meant they were anti Israel. And they were the, one of the big chances from the Palestine, from the river to the sea. And that really means no Israel. So you had 100,000 people who were anti-Israel, proclaiming that they wanted the elimination, in effect, of Israel. So they were proclaiming, in effect, they didn't want Jesus to return. And this was happening through the capitals of a lot of cities, they've been banned in some places, and it is the sentiment of more than just those 100,000. There were many others that were uh, probably uh, at home and so on who have that same sentiment. So we are living in this time when the whole world is focused upon, at least for the moment, focused upon this tiny little nation, which is about the size of Wales or something. It's got about 8 million people. 20% of them are Arabs anyway, are Muslims. There's some Arab Christians as well. And suddenly, you know, the Americans involved, uh, Iran's involved, the biggest sponsor of, of, of terrorism uh, probably in the world today. And, and, and so on, and it all focused upon this. And it started, as you know, by this incredible demonic, satanic attack upon people living in the, uh, around the Gaza area where the Hamas uh, militants and terrorists went and slaughtered babies and people having parties and you name it, they, and it was brutal. Uh, incredible brutality. And so we're witnessing at the moment something of not only political significance, geopolitical significance, but spiritual significance. Because the intent of all the pro-Palestinian people, and a lot more, is essentially the elimination of Israel. Now, that's spiritually strategic. That's not just their opinion. They are united on, oh, they can be disunited on everything, but they will be united on one thing that Jesus doesn't return. And this is quite common. There is, a, uh, in, in world history, remember, Herod and Pontius Pilate, they hated each other. But they drew together and became friends when it became to Jesus and putting him to death or getting rid of him. And it's exactly the same. There is this latent anti-Semitism because salvation is of the Jews. And we are saved because our salvation, as Jesus said, came from the Jews. And Jesus returned as king of the Jews back to the Jews. 
And we are meant to make them jealous so that they would repent and come to know him as well. And you cannot get away from this centrality of, of Israel in the end times. Very, very important. So we're living in spiritually very, very significant times. What will happen as a result of this conflict? Well, I don't know. But uh, because I know loads and loads of believers are praying for Israel at this time. So before we go any further, can we just pray that God's purposes, his overruling would take place? Because this is so important. Father, I want to lift Israel before you, Father. Father, this is a nation that you have created. You've ordained it. You've spoken about it a multitude of times in the Bible. And we know, Father, your son Jesus is returning to Israel, to the Jewish people, um, and that may not be far off. And now perhaps the devil feels his time is short and he doesn't want to watch prophecy fulfilled in front of him because he knows the end result, he knows what's on the last page. And, Lord, so we just call upon you to protect Israel at this moment from all the strategies of the enemy, all its viciousness, all its... Uh, it's hypocrisy, Lord, all its violence, all its inability to think straight and cleanly and righteously. And we just call upon you, Jesus, to send your hosts in here to overrule everything that has happened, Lord, and protect the nation of Israel to the glory of your holy name, Lord. Amen. Okay, that's a, a bit of what the, the devil is doing, but what we have prayed for, what we have spoken to the Lord, is for him to come in and to, on speaking that I want to really talk about today. But I want to mention something right from the beginning, and that is um, a little while ago, a week or two ago, I had a dream, a very clear dream, very short dream, but so clear that it, you realise somebody's trying to speak to me, and it was the Lord trying to speak to me. And you know it's the Lord because in the dream you see things that cannot have come from you because they were beyond your experience, beyond your feelings, beyond your emotions, beyond your imagination. So it cannot have come out of your soul and out of your mind. And in this dream, I saw myself on the earth, thankfully, and I looked up and I saw a demon power. It was high in the sky, on just a little one, it was a big one. And this demon power was looking at us, me and my wife, with absolute and absolute hatred. And it was very intently focused. And it was cold and hard and malign. And it's almost like difficult to put into words its character. But it was directed towards me. I saw myself in the dream. It was directed towards me. And I, in the dream, proclaimed the name of Yahweh above this demon, right? do the right thing, even in my dream, because I was very conscious in this dream, though it was clearly a dream. And I proclaimed that the power of Yahweh was far greater than his power, the power of the demon. And I found great comfort in that. And I proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And that was the end of the dream. I felt better, but it was the end of the dream, and I probably woke up a little while after that. Since then, life has been very, very difficult. <laughs> it's not that I stood against the demonic, but God was warning me in advance that a lot of demonic power would be directed against us. And I was to proclaim the name of Jesus as the antidote, because he is the overcomer. He is the one who has uh, rendered the devil uh, powerless, in some sense, from on the cross, because he'll eventually eliminate the devil completely. And it really occurred to me that if I hadn't had that dream, lots of things would have happened in my life because I start to find my thoughts were going all, sort, all over the place. Things weren't happening with fluency anymore. My wife had incredibly difficult times. Everything seemed to be opposed to us. There was this tendency towards getting uh, sullen and downhearted and, you know, the usual Ds, depression, dejection, disillusionment, dispiritedness, and all those sort of things started happening. I hadn't had that dream, I would have thought, well, this just happens to people anyway, because it's just all part of life. But it wasn't just all part of life. And it occurred to me that a lot of the time in our lives, things happen to us in our minds, our spirit, our soul, in our lives outside us, in our families, that are actually caused by a malign being, 
a demonic being. But if unless we can see that and discern that, we will not know that that's the truth, so we will not be able to combat it. And we will not be able to give some sort of explanation of what is happening to us. So we might end up living under it for quite some time. So it may be really important, I would really urge you to seek God, to say to him, oh God, is there anything in my life or what's affecting me from the outside that I have simply accepted as an ordinary part of life, which actually is the malign intent of a demonic being? Because it happens all the time. And I was, um, and, and be careful because a lot of stuff that may seem to be right may be wrong. I was reading in... Um, Acts, and I turn to Acts 16, and um, well, actually, it's Acts 16, 16. Now, this is a very interesting thing. You may have got there, may not. I'll read it out anyway. Now, it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, this is the place of prayer by the river where Lydia was. You probably know the story. A servant girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But being greatly annoyed, or provoked, as some versions said, Paul turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave her. And it left that very moment. All right, that ended up, him up in lots of trouble. But can you see that the, the, the demon spirit was telling the truth? These men are slaves of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now, unless Paul, and he wasn't instantly provoked or instantly annoyed, well, eventually he did realise that there's something wrong here, folks. I mean, you'd think this girl was doing them a, him a favour because she was like advertising that he was a man of God who was going to tell them how to get saved. Great. And can you imagine now that they'd started a church, Paul hadn't had this stuff, and then she'd come into the group and she must be a prophetess. So she would have been recognised in the church as a prophetess, but she had a spirit of divination. She was telling the truth, but the truth was not from God. And that is really important. That's why discernment in these things is so important. Paul had that discernment. Now, Peter had that discernment, I think, in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. You find a situation where Ananias and Sapphira come and they said to Peter and the apostles, we have sold this piece of land and this is how much money we got for it. We're going to give it to you. Now, selling a piece of land, giving it to the apostles, the apostles say, well done, that's really great. What a, what a fine servant. And Ananias and Sapphira were converted in times of difficulty. When the church was first being born, there was hostility from the rest of the Jews and potentially hostility from the Romans as well, who had put the leader of this sect, Jesus, to death on the cross. So he'd shown courage and commitment. And then, but he'd lied. He had got more for the land than he admitted. And he lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter discerned that. Now, just imagine somebody comes into your church and says, look, I really want to bless you. I've sold my car, my house, my boat, my jet, <laughs> or whatever else, and I want to give you all this money. Fine, but you know, or you don't know that he's lying. He's just giving you half of it or two-thirds of it or whatever. And you think this man is really committed. He's sold something really precious to him, worth an absolute lot of money, because he wants to sacrifice it to Jesus Christ. What a believer. And you end up with people like Ananias and Sapphira, or Ananias at least, in a position of respect, veneration, perhaps eldership in the church. But he'd lied to the Holy Spirit, and it cost him his life. He spoke, and he died. Peter spoke out the truth, Ananias died. Oh, was power in words, isn't there? it could cost you your life but that was the discernment because what would have happened in the time of the biggest move of God in the history of the world you would have had a lie from a, an evil spirit why has Satan filled your heart at the very center of a, the most important move of God ever so 
discernment about what is happening in your life and those around you counts enormously because Ananias seemed to be doing a great thing. This girl with a spirit of divination seemed to be doing a good thing. But they were actually demonically led. So always ask, always seek discernment about everything. Not everything that glistens is gold, as they say. Okay, that's just a little diversion to, to begin with. Now, Acts chapter 18 And um, this, uh, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is fairly new, but the reason I love it is because they don't translate Yahweh as Lord. They translate it as Yahweh. And God said to Moses, by this name, Yahweh, I want to be remembered through all generations. And I always was amazed that they always translate it Lord. It's not Lord, it's Yahweh. Anyway, that's why I read from this version. That's important to me. Right, Paul has just come from Athens, okay? After these things, he departed Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and his wife Priscilla, who had recently come from Italy, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he was staying with them. And they were working, for by tri trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a God-fearer, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and were baptised. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. That's the carry-on speaking bit. And do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Now, Paul goes into the synagogue, he preaches for a while, and he ends up being resisted. By the way, he goes in there, and what he's essentially is speaking. The reason I'm entitled this carry on speaking, because that's really what I want to talk about. God actually said to Paul, despite the fact that he was being resisted, carry on speaking. He wasn't going to be detracted by the hostility, by the animosity, by the uh, disagreement of his own people, the Jews in the synagogue, and also the God-fearing Corinthians, uh, Greeks. And he then says, do not be silent, because there is a tremendous pressure on him to be silent because they don't want him to speak. Essentially what the devil is saying to him, and he says it many times, in effect throughout the whole of Acts, shut up, don't want to hear this stuff. If we go look at a few places in Acts, we find out whole crowds, whole cities were in uproar because Paul was speaking. And then they started speaking, and what they were speaking, what Paul was speaking, was diametrically opposed. But the reason I chose this passage of scripture is this. For I have many people in this city. Because I was sitting and praying and saying, well, Lord, um, you know, James Pete, the pastor, um, he uh, has asked me to speak. What shall I speak about? Uh, I don't know. Can't think of anything just as well, because then I'm dependent on the Lord. And it came to me, for I have many people in this city. And he was thinking of Cambridge. I was thinking of Cambridge. I don't live in Cambridge, right? So I don't automatically think, think of Cambridge. But I have many people in this city. And you know what it is like when you know a truth, right? You know, for example, God loves you. And then one day God says to you that he loves you. But when he says it, there's a power with it. And your eyes are opened. 
and you've got tears in your eyes and you're overwhelmed and suddenly you say, well, now I know that God loves me. Well, actually, you knew it beforehand, but suddenly he's made it real, very real. And that's what he did with me over this, this little phrase, for I have many people in this city and I knew that I knew that I knew that, that there are thousands of people in this city whom God is going to save. And he is going to be saved because God's people are going to be speak, are going to speak. Look at the two things he says to Paul. Because Paul's afraid he's going to get beat up like he's been beat up everywhere else. He'd been warned that afflictions waited him in every place he went to. Do not be afraid. So what's forbidden? Fear. Do not be silent. What's forbidden? Silence. God has many people in this city and it requires that God's people, people like Paul and all those Christians who are with him, are one, they are not afraid to speak. They are not going to be silent because all the pressure of the enemy is to silence you. He can't deceive you. He will silence you. He silenced many of the churches because they've gone into sort of wokedom and all the rest of the stuff. So they're not even speaking out the true gospel of Jesus Christ. They've gone into compromise. They're not, they've been silenced. As far as uh, the Lord is concerned, they're not saying anything, a lot of them, that is having any impact into getting people saved. They've become uh, seeker-friendly in the wrong sort of way. Now, the, the thing about words is this. I can talk to you and it can have no impact at all. Other people can talk to me, it can have no impact at all. But when you're speaking spiritual stuff, the words have a tremendous impact. And this is what we have to grasp about our words. They are not just words. Nobody gets converted by just words. For, says Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So that when you speak spiritual stuff, Christian stuff, biblical stuff, in it the righteousness of God is revealed and you are letting loose a power, okay? And that power is something that can open the door of faith into somebody's heart and they will either resist it or they will accept it and thereupon their eternal destiny will be decided. Listen to this, Luke 10, 16. The one who listens to you, that's you talking, listens to me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. Can you see the power of what you're doing and what you are presenting to the non-believers out there? You are giving them the opportunity to listen to Jesus to accept him and thereby accept the Father or reject him and reject the Father. This is very, very serious. In, For example, in Acts 13, when Paul was in Pisidian Antioch, um, many Gentiles believed, in verse 44, and the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. Why did the whole city assemble to hear the word of the Lord? I mean, you preach the word of the Lord from this pulpit. Do you see the whole city crowding around the building, desperate to hear the word of God? Somehow or other, there was a power in Paul's preaching which had ignited the whole city, and they all wanted to know and uh, come and find out what it's about. Now, there's a distinct difference between Paul's preaching out there and us now, because he was preaching in virgin territory. They hadn't heard the gospel at all. All this was very new to them. The whole idea of a Messiah uh, dying for you and eternal life was new to all these people. Whereas in the West here, the gospel has been preached now and then throughout the centuries and a resistance has been built up. Most of the older generation may have gone to Sunday school church and they have rejected, so they have built up a stronghold and resistance. And that is why, in many respects, it's harder and we don't get the crowds. But you notice that when you get a missionary who goes to a, a virgin territory in Africa, South America, Asia, they get crowds of people. That resistance has not been built up. 
The lies of the enemy haven't infiltrated the hearts and minds of people and built up strongholds which automatically filter out or, or block out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he says this, after the Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Right. So you have judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Now, what had Paul done? He'd spoken in the synagogue. And what have the people done? Or crowds of them? They had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So you put the person you're talking to in the dock, guilty, condemned, by out of their own mouth. They have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So when they, on the great day of judgment, okay, now we know that God sends people to hell. He does specifically sail into the fire prepared for the devil and all his angels. That's God's ordinance, his command. But he's only doing it because they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. So they could be standing up there and said, well, actually, I've no right to be in heaven because I resisted everything and judged myself unworthy of eternal life. If they turned to Jesus, they would have become worthy of eternal life because all their sins would have been forgiven. They would be accepted into the family of God. Judge. So when you speak the gospel to anybody, you're putting themselves, and remember, you're speaking with power, the power of God, the power of righteousness, which will actually convict them of their sin. You are putting them in a position where they can judge themselves worthy of eternal life by accepting Jesus or worthy uh, or unworthy of eternal life by resisting him. It's a credibly important, crucial, and powerful thing you are doing. So when you speak, power goes forth. You are actually, people are being asked, in effect, whether they want to go to heaven or hell. We're asking them to give up their lives, to take on the lordship of somebody they don't know, but they can read about in the Bible, and accept their present life is hostile to God and detrimental to their lives. We're assassinating their pride and their self-esteem. So can you see that what you're doing is that you're doing something. People would rather give up anything than give up their life to Jesus. You're asking them to make the biggest decision they ever could do, the most costly decision they ever could make. And the consequences of that, you either will, uh, you will declare yourself worthy of eternal life or unworthy of eternal life. You become then agents of God's judgments. And uh, there's quite a lot of proof of this. But first I want to just emphasise the power of uh, speaking again. Because the Bible says, for example, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, that's spoken. Okay? And it also talks about the, um, in, in Isaiah 51, 50, sorry, 55, it says, 55... 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what, ple what pleases me and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent. Well, hang on a minute. That means that they're not just going to hear words, are they? They're going to get convicted. They're going to get, because the word of God will accomplish that for which it was sent. That means they, if they apparently uh, pay no attention, it doesn't make any difference because God is putting them on the spot. They're not. They're going to. Uh, they're going to hear. Now, and when they hear, once they've heard, and it's the word of God is there in them. And that's why Paul explained things to people for months on end sometimes, and then he suddenly stopped because they had resisted, but they only resisted because they'd heard and didn't like it and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says here, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. There you go. You can't just speak the gospel in word only. 
but also in power and the Holy Spirit and in full assurance. Something goes out from you that doesn't go out to you when you discuss everyday affairs. There's a power in it. That, the whole issue of persecution is quite simply the devil wants to shut you up. Notice wherever Paul went in these towns, he, the crowds rose and they, he was driven out, of the, driven out of the place. Why? Because, because speaking the gospel is like devastating for the, for the devil because you're robbing him of his goods. You're showing the people that he's not in charge. He is losing his authority and his power over people. And the full number of Gentiles is growing and growing and growing. And when that full number of Gentiles comes in, it's all part and parcel of Jesus' return, which is curtains for the devil. Now, one thing that Paul did say, uh, I'm take, going back to uh, Acts 13, 49, um, which is sort of illustrative of this. And this shows the importance of speaking, this, this, the sheer solemnity of it all. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. The word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Notice that power. It got spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. Shut up, Paul and Barnabas. Get rid of them. Get them out of our district. Why? Because what you're saying is too powerful for us. If you stay here, your word will go through the whole region. It was too late. It already had. However, they cannot stand before that word. So notice this, that when you speak the word of God, you are letting forth a power. Now, they instigated persecution against Paul and Barnabas, drove them out. But, this is Paul, having shaken off the dust of their feet against them, they went to Iconium. Notice that phrase, having shaken off the dust of their feet against them. This turns up a bit later. In, but I want to, um, in, uh, actually in Acts 18.6, it again says that Paul shook out his garments against the people, I think, in Pisidian uh, Antioch. And in Ephesus, in, Ephesus, in Acts 19.8, it says this, and after he'd entered the synagogue, he continued speaking out boldly for three months. Gives them plenty of time, make sure they heard, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But some were becoming hardened and were not believing, speaking evil of the way before the multitude. He left them and took away his disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Okay, he left. In effect, shook out his garments. He'd been with them quite a long time. Now, Listen to the words of the Lord. Matthew 10, 14. Whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you leave that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly, and look, listen to the consequences of that, this resistance. He doesn't say, oh, well, maybe we'll come back in a few years' time and they may be more amenable. No. When he'd shaken off the dust of his feet, and they had resisted and they had blasphemed. They had set up a really strong opposition. This is the consequence. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. He's talking about the day of judgment. He's saying that these people have had their chance. And that's a very important thing. Because... When you talk to people and they do not respond and you carry on, and that's good because Paul spent a lot of time with some of these people, and eventually they are resisting you and perhaps they're sneering at you and then they end up blaspheming, speaking against the name of the Lord, it's time to shut up. That's when you stop speaking. You can't help them. You're in effect shaking the dust off your feet. You, there's nothing more you can do. You have to leave them to God. Don't waste your time talking with people who have resisted and are blaspheming the name of the Lord. 
There comes a time when you do have to stop speaking and you go and speak to the rest because there's a plenty of people and there may not be that much more time. Do not waste your time. Those people have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. But notice, you were the agent of that judgment. You spread aboard the gospel. You put them under conviction of some sort, whatever they may think, they would not resist and stir up and instigate crowds if there was no conviction in what you were saying. Who cares whether Paul comes along in a tiny little synagogue, in a tiny little street, in a corner of Corinth and starts speaking stuff that most of the Greeks in Corinth haven't a foggiest what it means? Who cares? But why does the city get stirred up? Why is there a persecution beginning? Why are they dragged before magistrates? There's something happening here that's going far beyond a few words. So that's the power of speaking. You can stir up a hornet's nest. Remember when Paul was in Ephesus? You know? And he got so many people converted in the region that Demetrius, the silversmith, says, well, we're not selling so many idols anymore. This is an outrage. And he gathers together his friends. They create a great stir. Soon the whole city is in uproar. They drag him before the magistrates, and the magistrates say, we know this, we've got to calm this riot down, because if the Romans hear about it, and the Romans hated social disorder, they'd be here with their swords, and we'd be in real trouble. So you, you think, well, Paul was only, he wasn't even blaspheming their gods. He wasn't robbing their temples. And they admitted that. But there was such a power in the gospel that it stirred up a hornet's nest of people who hadn't even heard him speak. So that is the type of uh, tsunami that can actually happen when you speak the gospel. You do not know how much power is in your words. It may appear to be just words to you, but if it's the gospel going forth as God has directed it, then the consequences can be enormous. And it's the same with miracles. Um, in uh, Acts 19, 11, it says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that cloths and aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. Okay, and they still were not believing. Remember in Lystra, where he heals a, uh, a man who hadn't walked at all in his life. He was lame from birth. And they all thought he was... He was uh, Hermes and Barnabas was Zeus and they were going to make offerings to him and uh, uh, they were all enamoured of them and thought this was fantastic. The gods have come down in human flesh and soon um, people came along and stirred up the crowds against them and he was stoned and he had to flee. Well, why? He'd done a great thing and he gets stoned for it. It's ridiculous. But listen to what Paul, uh, Jesus says. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, new Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. See, the, the gospel goes with signs following. You preach, signs follow. People then resist what they can see. Now, given they've resisted what they've heard... They are saying they will go down to Hades. They will go and suffer more than Tyre and Sidon and, and Sodom and Gomorrah. But it was you guys who gave the gospel. You guys who put them in that position. There is power in the word of God, which has this incredible effect. But the incredible effect is not always bad, because as we mentioned before. In all these instances, whether it's Lystra or Derby or Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, Athens, there was a great turning to Jesus and the gospel went through whole regions and great crowds came up. But you see, what I want to also mention this is though these great salvations took place and, you know, uh, they could, I think it was at Philippi, they complained that the, the, Paul, and Barnas were, Paul and Silas were turning the whole world upside down. Tremendous power released to turn the world upside down. Notice that the devil also speaks. They come, 
Some people from synagogue, they're embittered, they're jealous, they're angry. They speak to the people of power, the women of, or the men of great prominence. They stir up an instigation, and soon they have great crowds feeding out of their hands. And those great crowds, many of them don't understand the issues, but they understand one thing, that Paul and the uh, uh, Barnabas and Silas and all the rest of it are speaking evil and bad and must be banished from our city. They drag them before the courts. They cast them out. They got stoned, beaten. That's the power of the enemy. You set up a clash, and it's an almighty clash, and it's a global clash. When we started off saying about all those uh, pro-Palestinian groups, not necessarily all Palestinians but others, who are proclaiming uh, Palestine from the river to the sea, that's a demonic voice. And it engulfed 100,000 people. And they were in the middle of the city, our city, chanting this, and in many other towns and cities. That's the power of the enemy. It's wicked, and it is terrible, terribly powerful. And Paul, actually, Paul, I've got um, a quote here from 1 Thessalonians 2.16, which I'll read out. Um, he's talking about the Jews, that's the first century Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and do not please God and are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Again, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. What's the result of that for those people doing this? With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Maybe that was a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem and the death of thousands and thousands of Jews in AD 70. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost because the most important and precious thing to Jesus is for the salvation of people and the gathering together of his bride. These people were hindering, hindering that, as were all these other people who, who, who rendered themselves unworthy of eternal life, who for whom Paul shook out his garments so that and with the implication of that it's all over for you, you've had your last opportunity because it would be better for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. And that is the power of the word of God and the severity of your calling because you have been sent. You know, it says right from the beginning, Romans 10, how will they call on whom they, in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom, whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? You've been sent here. So it's just, you know, oh, I just happen to live here. No, no, no. God knew you before you were born. He decided and appointed the place where you were going to live. And he saved you here. So if you're here, you've been sent here. If you're sent here then you're here to preach, not necessarily from the front of a church, but to the non-believers, to put them in, give them absolute clarity of where, of, of where they are. It's very important. If you don't speak, power does not get let loose. But the devil will speak. He's speaking in the schools. He's speaking in the churches. He's speaking in parliament. He's speaking in the council chambers. He's speaking in the media and through the media. And it's have a devastating effect upon our nation. And what's happened to the, the, uh, the, the mainstream churches? Well, they've shut up. They agree with the, uh, they agree with the people who, who speak against the Lord and his righteousness. They've been shut up. Might as well have been driven out. Well, in this case, he did, he did that early on them. He infiltrated them. And it says in Jude, you know, but people have secretly crept in who have turned the grace of our God to a license for sensuality. Well, that's been amply, amply, uh, uh, played out in today's society. So we're in desperate times. But you can actually uh, defeat the enemy at the gates. It says so in uh, Isaiah 58. There you go. So it's not too late. Now, there's plenty of other verses I could speak to prove the point, And you're probably familiar with a lot of them. You don't... The only people you don't speak to is, one, the people who've resisted you to the point where it's pointless anymore and they started to revile what Jesus is doing and revile his name. 
Don't talk to them. Forget them. Shake the dust off your feet. But when you do talk to people, you also have to find out where they are. The most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when Paul actually went to uh, Athens, these people didn't know anything about the Torah, didn't know anything about the Bible, didn't know anything about the God of the Hebrews. They, they loved their philosophical ideas. They were Epicureans and Stoics, says, uh, well, there were quite a lot of them there in, in Acts 17. And um, Epicureans basically meant that you lived for pleasure and you avoided pain, and Stoics thought that the good life uh, was uh, accomplished by being virtuous. And Paul comes along, and this he explains to them. He explains to them, oh, no, there is a God in heaven. In um, verse 24 of Acts uh, 17, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And he says he gave life to all people and so on and forth, so forth, appointed their times and the boundaries of their habitation in, in case they might seek for him and grope for him. But then he goes on and says, but, um, and that we're the offspring of God, but then God overlooked our times of ignorance and is now commanding all men everywhere to repent. Nasty word for an unbeliever. Because he's fixed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof by all, to all, by raising him from the dead. So Paul gets right back, even though these Greeks, and even though you're in a city where Greek philosophy, uh, uh, secular humanism, man is the measure of all things, predominates, they are without excuse, says Paul in Romans 1, because you can see that God exists, his divine nature and his attributes by that which has been made. That is the argument that Paul uses here. And then he goes on to say, but now why is Christianity true? I can prove to you God is there. Why is Christianity true? It's because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, Paul had living experience of that because he'd met the Lord. And you could go and ask apostles and 500 people. Uh, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, I think, had seen the Lord. And you could probably in those days go and talk to them and you would have their personal testimony. Luke begins his, his, um, his gospel and the book of Acts by saying, uh, I've considered all these things and got real proof so that you may know the certainty of what, we, what we've said. But the point is, is this, there is always a living testimony to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the Holy Spirit convicts people that Jesus is alive and he's risen from the dead. So though you can't, though they may turn around and say to you, oh yeah, but that was thousands of years ago. How on earth? We can't go and ask all these people, these eyewitnesses now. You don't need an eyewitness now, mate. You've got the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but do you want to know? You ask him whether he's risen from the dead. And that's when they shut up. I've constantly done this with Muslims. I said, well, if you really want to know, Ask Jesus if he's risen from the dead. That's the end of the argument. I've actually asked them to do something that they don't want to do in case it's true, because it is true. So you meet people where they are and you speak to them graciously. And it says well, there's loads of parts of scripture where it talks about how we are to speak. And we are to speak with grace, with kindness, let your um, your uh, Colossians 4, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word, that we may speak the mystery of Christ for which I have also been bound, that I may make it manifest in the way I ought to speak. Verse 5 of that chapter, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, redeeming the time. Your words always be great with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should answer each person. So you're not doing this uh, as pleasing men, as it says in Thessalonians. You're not, you're not trying to be cleverer than they are because what we're doing is giving people conviction. And you don't reason to conviction. You might reason to them there's a God, like Paul did with the Athenians, but then he moves it on to conviction. But God commands all men everywhere to repent. And he, and he has uh, determined a time which he's going to judge the world. Last thing anybody wants to hear Remember, it says, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable, and it will make them miserable, because they will sit there and think, oh, good grief, I'm going to be judged for all my sins. I didn't know I had all these sins, but now I know I've got them. It's curtains for me, unless I have a saviour. 
and he furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. You can give anybody proof by telling them that Jesus rose from the dead and asking them not just to believe it, but to pray to see whether that's true because the Holy Spirit wants to give them that conviction. So they can't run away and say, well, I have no proof that Jesus was risen from the dead. That's because you don't want any proof because the proof is there for the asking. And if you don't ask, you won't get it. Okay? And you'll be end up judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life because you resisted, because you were angry with the truth. Um, the reason we speak graciously and kindly to people, and we may not always feel like doing that, is because you do not want to let, we don't want to let our dispositions, any angers, any superiority, any pride, any awareness of our cleverness, uh, get in the way of the gospel, because the gospel will go by the Holy Spirit. So he likes clean vessels to move for, through. If you speak in, uh, with pride or superiority or self-righteousness or, or anger or, 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 or whatever, you will hinder the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. That is why we must learn to be gracious, even if the people speaking to us are speaking under the spirit and power of the world who is working in the sons of disobedience, it says in Ephesians 2. So there you go. That is um, a bit on speaking for you. And um, remember this. God is going to move in this city. You can be part of the agency of that by speaking, or you can keep your mouth shut, which is exactly what the devil wants you to do. He wants churches like this to shut up and we do everything to make them shut up. But don't shut up. Speak. Because there'll be a great heavenly reward for you. And great blessing will come upon this. And you will fulfill your function as believers on earth. If you didn't have a function of saving people, you might as well be in heaven. You might as well die go to heaven because there's no use on earth. The only reason we're here on earth is to fulfill the Great Commission. And when that's fulfilled, Jesus returns. So why are we here? Great commission. Commission finishes, we go. End of story. Great. Praise the Lord. Bless you all.